Hello out there on the internet, I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Crypto is the Wild West. Decentralized finance is the purview of the rich and the risk taker. There's millions to be had, but it's easy, often too easy, to lose everything. If you read Motherboard, you know that big and wild hacks are common. My ear went offline recently and hackers stole 113 million from it. The Osmosis Exchange just lost 5 million to hackers. And those are just the stories Motherboard reported out this week. If you're an investor, an exchange, or a private holder, who do you turn to when crypto is being stolen? Well, the, authori- the authorities are so far behind, it's not funny. And no, so remember, this is the Wild West. Sometimes the only thing that can handle a black hat is a white hat. Today we're going to meet one of the vigilante white hat hackers who saves crypto from thieves by stealing it before they can. With me today is Motherboard senior staff writer Lorenzo Franceschi Bicarai, who wrote about the phenomenon on the site, and LP, one of the white hat hackers who steals before it can be stolen. Which is confusing, but we're going to get into it. (laughs) Thank you both so much for coming onto the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, LP. LP, can you give us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I am not a cybersecurity professional or a crypto person by training. I actually am a scientist by training. I have a PhD in engineering and went through that whole scene before realizing that I actually hate academia and I do not want to be a professor, which is a bit of a problem when you get a PhD in engineering since that's your career path. So after that, I decided to exit into intellectual property law, um, and I worked for a large Silicon Valley company for a little bit of time as a specific type of engineering specialist in intellectual property prosecution. Uh, A couple years prior to that, during my PhD, I was introduced to crypto by my now husband. He was really early into the scene and was really, you know, gung-ho about all of the promise and potential of crypto from a very philosophical standpoint. So I started to get more involved in this space. Uh, I would say just at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, one of our friends introduced us into decentralized finance, also known as DeFi, which lets you, instead of just passively holding your cryptocurrency like you had pretty much been able to do prior to that. Just you buy, you hold, you invest, you hope the price goes up. Um, Decentralized finance lets you become an active investor and really become your own bank. And so by doing that, you're able to directly reap the rewards of a lot of these investments, much like a bank would. But unfortunately, it also means that there's no longer a centralized third party which means that your funds are that much more vulnerable. Like you said in the introduction, you get these huge wide sweeping scams that are just able to steal your funds. And once they're gone, unfortunately, they are usually gone. This situation happened pretty early in our decentralized finance experience. So while we were really enthusiastic about putting our crypto to use and being able to make these high direct returns, um, unfortunately, my husband got quite a large amount in the field, we call these because the rug is pulled out from under you, which is also where my name comes from because, well, I'm a doctor and I deal with rugs. <laughs> um, 
So he wound up getting rugged for a pretty significant amount of money since we were not really aware of all the risks, even though it should have been obvious because like so many new users, we did not do our research particularly well before we started in on this. Um, however, the saving grace is all of DeFi is written on what are called smart contracts. And smart contracts are essentially computer programs that you can look at and they will tell you exactly what these protocols can and cannot do with your funds. Because since decentralized finance is decentralized and there's no human or entity at the center, these smart contracts run everything. So if you can learn how to run these smart contracts, you can learn what a protocol can and can't do with your funds. And if there are or aren't particular risks to the user when you're investing in this. Luckily, one of the things that I did pick up during my PhD is how to program in many different languages since I was building and designing to do certain research functions. So I sat down and I noticed that these smart contracts were written in a language called Solidity, which is a bit of a weird language, but it's actually a fairly simple, natural language language. Um, and once we were able to put this together, I was able to just put my programming know-how from my past into understanding the risks of these crypto products. And so that sort of segued into the company that I have today, which is both a user-oriented company called rugdoc.io, where we go through and we analyze smart contract risks and develop pools for decentralized finance investors so they can be a little bit safer and understand the contractual risks of protocols, as well as just be a little bit savvier through hopefully education programs. And then on the other end, we work with developers at Paladin Blockchain Security, where we try to encourage practices and really make sure that these smart contracts are secure, functional, and you know, really performing at a high and secure level for both the developer and the user. So in the piece, Lorenzo kind of characterizes you and other people like you as white vigilante white hat hackers, I think is the headline, but it sounds like your own self description that is maybe not quite uh, the moniker you would use. Do you feel like that's an app description? Do you, would you push back against it? How do you feel about it? Well, I think that it's certainly a part of what we do. So we've really taken the place of trying to, just because we were early into decentralized finance um, and early in decentralized finance is honestly not that old at all. But since we were kind of early in the space as being user-oriented and community security, we were really able to start expanding and just trying to cover the needs of the community as they came, right? So we started with, you know, just these smart contract reviews and tools and developer services. But it quickly turned out that we started doing all sorts of um, all sorts of functions all over the community. And we sort of became the de facto DeFi police, even though I absolutely hate that term because we are not the DeFi police. The police are the police. But unfortunately, like you said, it is a bit of a wild west out there in, in DeFi. So we found ourselves in the position of having to help companies catch their exploits or try to stop a hack or try to recover funds or, you know, return funds to the community when they have been hacked. And so we've just sort of been piecemealing all sorts of things together. And 
some of what we do is indeed white hat hacking. And so I have had to go in and actually. Thank you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yes, some of what we do is indeed white hat hacking, because, like I said, we've just sort of had to cover all of these random and broad strokes of community safety. So we have found ourselves in the position multiple times where we are actually trying to pull an exploit before an exploiter can. I think it's also important to talk a little bit about what white hat hacking is. So, you know, your your traditional hacker comes in and is like really there to like steal your funds. And a white hat traditionally can go through and using their programming know-how try to beat out that exploit that's being called through usually a smart contract exploit. But for me, it's a little bit of a broader term. It just means that you have figured out a vulnerability in the system that someone else has figured out or possibly haven't even figured out yet. And you can either beat out someone who is actively trying to exploit that, work with the project and basically go to them and say, hey, we found a problem with your protocol. Let's help you fix it. Here is the fix to that. Or unfortunately in DeFi, uh, you do get often projects that are malicious. And so that vulnerability that we find was left there intentionally because they plan to steal from the users. And so in those cases, we'll try to pull the exploit before they can or just shut them down before they can through a community warning and just try to save the funds through either beating an exploiter to patch it or just trying to either exploit it in a malicious or warn the community against a malicious project. Ice Drops in our chat asks, is the code ever obfuscated to make it harder to interpret? Sure, it is. You know, people can put nonsense code in there, but the nice thing is one of the ways that we have figured out how to be very efficient at looking through dozens of smart contracts a day sometimes at RugDoc, because you have to understand, especially when we're in a bull market cycle like where we were last summer, there are so many of these small DeFi protocols that are popping up every day. There's dozens and dozens of them. And the community is going to be jumping into so many at once. So what we decided to do is to try to review quickly in 48 hours or less, at least at a very, very basic level, aimed at user safety to get users uh, a review of this code. And one of the ways we found out how to do that, and, and again, this is a very basic, very preliminary way to look at views, is to more or less compare the contract that we've been given for this new unknown DeFi protocol and compare it against a database that we keep of common code bases and then just hone in on the differences. So this is one way that we're able to filter out some of the noise in our very basic reviews. Of course, when we're actually auditing a protocol and spending days or weeks on something over at Paladin, you know, of course there's nonsense code added in, but we're able to spend the time to actually parse through it manually and go through and figure out what the core functions are at a much better detail. Um, so I guess the short answer is yes, people, especially malicious actors, will first try to hide their code. But the blockchain is nice because the blockchain is public. It's, it's a public ledger. So you can't really hide your code when an investor interacts with the DeFi protocol 
they're interacting with the program that you have designed and everybody can see that on the blockchain. So everybody knows what smart contract is yours ultimately. Um, And so that way we can kind of figure out what the protocol is working on and we can really go through the uh, lines of code efficiently to figure out what's function, what isn't. What do you think? So this is like a whole new world, right? This is people. We're all figuring all this stuff out kind of as we go. It's very different from traditional finance markets. Do you, what are the strengths and weaknesses of doing things in this public smart contract driven way? Sure. Well, um, the, the strength is going to be its transparency and its efficiency. Because when you have these codes deployed on the blockchain and you're really dealing with financial technology on the blockchain, everybody can see everything. There's this huge, um, it's not really a myth, but there's this idea that crypto is completely anonymous. And it's not. To some degree, perhaps you don't necessarily have a name like you would have at a bank account. You haven't turned in your ID to a central authority and put it hand in hand with your checking account or savings account number. But in DeFi, everyone can see every single thing that everybody is doing. So if I have a wallet and you have a wallet, I will always know what your wallet is doing from now until in perpetuity. Maybe I don't necessarily know it's your wallet, but I can see every single transaction and every single contract you've ever made or interacted with. And the same for you with me. So being able to see that especially if you realize that you can start to read the code. And if you're a uh, savvy programmer, you know, you're, you're able to really understand the risks. Whereas when you're dealing with a centralized authority, like a traditional bank, you don't know what they're doing with your money. You don't know what they're engaging in. You don't know where your funds are. And frankly, you don't even own those, right? You give them to the bank, they send you an IOU and they use your funds to invest. In DeFi, you own your funds directly. Your crypto is yours and yours alone, and you know exactly where it is and where everybody else is at any given moment. Of course, it's open 365 days a year, seven days a week, 24-7. I mean, I consider that a benefit, but that's also a bit of a, a, <laughs> a bad thing if you're looking to sleep regularly. Um, but it's always available. Whereas I know that if I need to make a transaction on a Sunday or at 2 a.m., I'm going to have to wait until the next banking day. Or if it's a three-day bank holiday, I can't do anything until Tuesday or one. Um, so that's always frustrating. So, um, I also think that, well, we have all of these great advantages of the speed, the 24-7, the, the transparency of being able to understand the risk if you're a savvy user. There's also no no gatekeeper anymore, right? So that's its big problem. You can have anybody launch anything, and you don't necessarily know who is launching it. So you can have scammers take advantage of this, and that's what they they you know do. <laughs> you have somebody who can just launch a new smart contract on the blockchain, and sure, we can see every single transaction that that person that will made but we don't necessarily know who it is so it makes it a little bit harder to um, hold these people accountable or to stop this and again there, there's no there's no gatekeeper anybody can do this so there's no longer the DeFi. there's no longer a bank there's no DeFi police there's no central authority any scammer can just show up 
launch a project. And so long as it looks halfway legitimate, you know, there's a chance that they get lucky and they get to steal a good amount of funds or they get to get away with a large exploit, whereas it's a whole lot harder to go and rob a bank. Yeah. So unfortunately, this just comes down to both the pros and the cons of user skill. <laughs> if you're a skilled user, is able to really take the time to burst through the risks and benefits. It can be an amazing and freeing field. But if you're really looking for convenience and you don't have the time to look into what you're doing, you know, you're you're that much more vulnerable than had you gone through a more established centralized institute. All right, we're going to pause there for a break. Cyber listeners, if you are watching the Twitch stream, we will, back, we will be back immediately. If you're listening to the podcast, here are a few words from our sponsors. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Cyber. We are on with LP and Lorenzo Franceschi Bicarai. We are talking about the white hat, the white hat hackers who keep decentralized finance safe. Lorenzo, so you wrote this piece: Meet the vigilante who hacks millions in crypto to save it from thieves. And one of the things I thought that was really interesting in here that you talked about was the how much of this stuff it, we, you know we use these terms white hats and black hats. But a lot of this stuff kind of exists in a gray area, right? And it's not always clear who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. And maybe those are even bad terms that we're that we're using. Can you kind of get into that and like when some of this vigilantism can go wrong? What are the perils here? Yeah, the first thing that I thought was interesting as I or a little nugget here is that the term white hat and black hat comes from Western movies, which I didn't know because I really don't like Western movies, um, and uh, in cybersecurity, it's been used for probably like decades at this point to indicate people that are either benevolent hackers or malicious hackers. You know, there's even a conference called Black Hat, uh, one of the largest conferences in the world. Um, and yeah, in theory, the terms make it very clear your intentions. So, if you are like a cybersecurity researcher who looks for bugs, flaws. Um, in code, in products, uh, you find them and then you alert the product, uh, you know, you alert the developers of and hopefully they fix it. Uh, sometimes you get a reward, you know, it used to be just shitty t-shirts. Now it's tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars. Uh, whereas if you're a black hat, you are one of the, you know, cyber criminals that steal money or, you know, important files and stuff like that. Um and in crypto, it's not that clear, um, you know, because as LP was explaining, because a lot of these funds are sort of like out in the open, you know, uh, controlled by smart contracts that are that anyone can read, that anyone can find flaws in. Sometimes these are like basically sitting ducks. You know, this crypto is right there for anyone to see, for anyone to take. And sometimes... Um, 
people think that the best approach is to just go in uh, and take the funds. And, you know, sometimes that happens because the developers are not available. Sometimes they're not, they're not even that easy to, to contact. You know, just as, you know, in my daily job, uh, when I reach out, when I write about a, a crypto project that's been hacked, obviously I want to reach out and ask for comment. Sometimes the official website doesn't have an email to contact. You have to go through Discord, where sometimes the admins don't accept DMs. So it's not that easy and not it's not always easy to reach out to the people responsible for that code, which I think it's a big part of why sometimes um, white hat hackers just go in and take the funds and then worry about returning them later. Uh, but it is a gray area. Uh, I spoke with uh, Preston Byrne, uh, a lawyer who specializes in crypto and cybersecurity, and he was very clear that he would never do that. He wouldn't just go in and take the funds without some sort of coordination or some some you know even implied consent from the you know the potential victims or the crypto project. Um, and that's the approach of some some researchers. I spoke to a couple of them that told me that they usually don't do that unless it's really necessary. One of them even said, you know, it's I never use my wallet. I don't want to. I don't want to get into that. So it is, uh, you know, it is a gray area. Um, I also did. I did ask a question to a prosecutor at a conference a couple of weeks ago about this, and she was clear that yeah, it's it is a gray area. It could be something that prosecutors look at, but she also said, you know, if everyone is happy, if everyone gets their cryptocurrency back, their money back, then maybe we wouldn't bother uh, going after these people. LP, do you have like a framework of best practices when you're doing this work? Is there like an ethical guideline that you've kind of created? I know that this all stuff, all this stuff is really bleeding edge. Um, I'm just kind of wondering like how you proceed as you're doing this work and keep a reputation and like build a reputation. Sure. So in the space, your reputation, you know, it's very easy to track. It's just for the community has responded to you over the time you've existed more or less. So if you're just transparent about what you do um, and, you know, your intentions generally do align with the communities, you're going to build a pretty good reputation. And so that's what we've been able to find. That's what I've found. People genuinely really like us around because we provide a life just safety or education or, you know, hopefully an objective third party that users know that they can turn to to figure out the risks and of what they're about to do. And, and we have cultivated that reputation for being an investor's resource and an investor's safe haven. That's what I'm considering when we have been approached with the opportunity to white hat something. It is much like DeFi, especially since it is so cutting edge. Um, it's very gray. There's no black and whites. So I try and just follow how does this help the community or how would it hurt the community? And I just try and do a quick risk benefit analysis. Often a lot of these DeFi protocols are small. Um, so instead of hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, you just have dozens of these things, tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. You also have a lot of these DeFi protocols that are just made by more or less anonymous developers from all around the world. And of these are based in the U.S. So my risk-benefit analysis usually includes how fertile the community likely to be if this exploit is pulled, 
can I get in contact with the developers? Because like Lorenzo said, sometimes it's really hard to get in contact with somebody. We always try. And so we're lucky enough that we've been in the space and have a lot of connections at all sorts of levels, high and low. And so we can usually find someone who knows someone or at least throw the weight reputation and defense to get our DMs taken seriously. You know, we don't look like just some random user who pops up. Usually when you see our logo and you see, you know, Rodoc is going to DM you, that counts for something. Um, so, yeah, it's usually just a risk-benefit analysis. How hurt is this likely to be? Can I coordinate this with the developer, because if I can, that's great. If I can just tell them, you guys have a problem, this is the problem, this is the solution, let's help you fix it, that's my preferred mode. I much prefer doing that just because it's easier, it's less work for me, um, and obviously it's less risk for me, but it still saves the user funds. But occasionally, either the developer will be malicious, and so we start to feel that we should probably either get the community out, or if we can't get the community out, we can uh, at least take the user funds and return them through a distribution, which is what we wind up doing in these cases. Or if it's in the middle of an activity and the developers turn to us for help or the community starts turning to us for help if the developers aren't around, then, and we can't contact the developers, then we'll try to basically outrace the exploiter in pulling the exploit and then return the funds to the user. Um, there's also a memo ago that the Justice Department put out regarding the CFAA, which is the Computer Fraud and Abuse, which is really where a lot of this came from. You know, it was concerned that good faith security researchers, white hats, would um, be prosecuted by the Justice Department under the CFAA. You know, if you were touching funds that weren't yours or you had temporary custody of funds that weren't yours, you know, you could get prosecuted for pulling the hack, even if it saved them. However, the Justice Department just put out a memo um, that clarifies that the CFAA would not be used to target white hat hackers and that they are not interested in prosecuting good faith computer security, you know. So that ultimately puts the impetus back on us and other white hats to do the right thing by the community if we can return funds and the community is happy or the developers are happy because we have prevented something really disastrous from happening. It is highly unlikely that anybody's going to complain or try to charge against us. So those are some of the considerations that I think about before I figure out what mode of action I want to take. Can I ask you a question about something that may be ongoing right now? Sure. Yeah. Um, we are regularly, because again, there's so many of these DeFi protocols and like, all the time and new ones pop up all the time. So there is almost a new problem every single day. I will say my days are never boring anymore since I joined this field. Um, yeah. So a couple of, really a couple of months ago, we were approached by a large centralized exchange with concerns over a project who we had KYC information on because that is one of the services that we do provide. And the centralized exchange also had their KYC information. They basically wanted to compare notes because they had some concerns about the mode of operation this um, decentralized protocol was using because they were using a centralized exchange as a core function of their protocol, which is a very unusual and obviously a risky move for all parties involved. 
shuttling funds from DeFi to CeFi and back again, especially if your user funds is a part of your decentralized process, is convoluted, makes no sense and concerning. Um, it also opens up the centralized exchange for liability potentially. So they were concerned. We compared notes. Um, and I thought everything was fine. But then we were approached by a, another large decentralized protocol who had a Volt project, which means an auto compounding protocol that used the pools that the problematic decentralized exchange had. They, they came to us with concerns that they were essentially backing, um, minting unbacked funds. And so we started digging into it with a couple other groups. And sure enough, we found that this very large bridge protocol, and a bridge is a protocol that basically lets different blockchains interact with each other. So it lets you send one type of asset on one blockchain, such as the Ethereum on Ethereum blockchain, to a different network, such as using your Ethereum on the Avalanche network or on the Binance network. Um, so these protocols are usually open to all sorts of risks. Um, but this particular bridge was abusing its governance protocols. They had, during a time of financial desperation, minted themselves a bunch of unbacked stable currency, and they were using it to prop up another firm project. They were operating, um, which is obviously not another You can't be minting unbacked things, and you shouldn't be mangling user funds between two different protocols. You know, funds should be operated independently with each protocol. So they found themselves in a bit of a pickle because they suddenly found themselves not being able to bridge and have the liquidity to move assets around. So their tokens crashed. People weren't able to move their funds out of their protocol. People got stuck on a blockchain and still are stuck on a blockchain. Um, so we had a line of communication with this team and we essentially went to them and said, hey, we know that you did some very problematic and concerning things. That's not the concern right now. We have a solution for you guys. Let's see if we can work through it and use the governance privileges that you abused to uh, fix this problem. Because by shutting down the bridge, by removing user funds, by giving themselves all of these very centralized privileges in the DeFi space... They were able to hurt their users, but it also put them in a unique position for a DeFi protocol to be able to use their governance privileges to start to recoup some of the costs and move funds back in from other locations. So we've been working with this protocol for, I think, the last two or three days. And of course, the community is stressed and panicked. Um, and we've been coordinating with a lot of other parties to try and help this protocol patch what they did wrong. And hopefully in another day or two, we'll be able to tell users that their funds are returned. But unfortunately, ultimately, since this is a governance problem and not just our usual smart contract programming based fix, um, it really has to do with abused centralized privileges that the project granted itself. Unfortunately, even though we have laid out all of the steps and are working with this team to fix it, the team could decide tomorrow that they just don't care anymore and not fix their mistake or just to pocket the money and run. And 
we at least know their identity. So we'll be able to work with finance and some other large parties and, you know, hopefully finding some sort of a resolution. But um, ultimately, this is going to come down to the protocol and if they want to cooperate in this particular. Has this entity made any public facing statements about what's going on? They have, but their statements have essentially said that it's a bunch of FUD, which is a DeFi acronym for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So they're basically saying that people are just spreading fear, uncertainty, and doubt about the project for whatever malicious gain may be, um, and that they're actually fine, and there's no problems, and that they're going to get everything back online in four days. But it's been several days, and we let them kind of try and sort things out for 48 hours before in because you know we obviously prefer if a project can fix themselves before we we walk in so we gave them ample time to fix it and then when it became clear that they either weren't able to or were not going to that's when we stepped in a couple days ago um so they have not made any i would say hear it front-facing statements they have made a lot of pr statements that are not actually Uh, A couple of you have asked about that uh, in the chat. I believe she answered in a very diplomatic way that laid out the situation. If you were paying attention (laughs) Uh, without, without damning specifics, but I think everyone can put the pieces together if they're involved in the space and they've been watching what's going on. Right. Right. Everyone happy. Yeah. I I, I would say, um, you know, I'm trying to just, since this is still an active situation, yeah. obviously, we don't want to put, and no concrete actions have happened. There's no resolution, but there hasn't been an overt malicious action either. Mm-hmm. And so, well, I always treat DeFi protocols with a hefty degree of skepticism. Um, you know, I also try to not be particularly damning because who knows? Until something has actually happened, there's objective evidence of something malicious going on, I want to give, I don't know, the benefit of the doubt to the project that they can come to a resolution. And I also want to try and give my best effort with my team and with the trust that we have with this protocol um, of fixing it, right? And so if I come right out and say, like, you guys are bad guys, and we know that you're bad guys, obviously, they're not going to want to work with us anymore. And that hurts everybody. That hurts the users. That hurts the project. So I really try to go in and, you know, just neutral, play the neutral third party of saying, hey, something maybe happened here. Maybe it's your fault. Maybe it's not. That's okay. That's not important. We have a solution. Let's try to find a solution. Let's try to return community funds. Let's try to give everybody the best outcome of this possible. And, you know, it's kind of up to them to figure out how that ends, unfortunately, in this case which always makes me nervous. It's a lot easier when it's a code-based white hat because then at least I can say, I know how to execute this. There is a concrete solution. We can deal with this if the project is you know, ne- not necessarily cooperative. Where do you see... It's interesting because you're one of the first people I've talked to um, that's not a journalist about all of this that's made me feel like maybe there is a future here that is not just a rigged game of constant scams. Um, where do you see the, where do you, 
how do you see the next five years of this space? Not just your, not just your particular concerns being this kind of lawgiver in this space. I don't know what word to use. Uh, they all seem to fail. Um, but decentralized finance in general and crypto in general, you know, there's a lot of FUD out there about this, especially from mainstream. Do you think that this is something that is going to get more more readily adopted by people? Do you think that there is a bright future here? I'm not sure bright is the accurate description because, again, nothing in finance is ever black and white and nothing in crypto. I think there is a future, though. And it's funny that you say that I'm like the first person you've talked to has, who has given you some hope that there is a future. Um, I think a lot of the crypto community is so new and a lot of them came out of very core philosophical belief in crypto that they wind up losing sight of the big picture and sometimes aren't their own best advocate. Um, I think, again, there's this huge, you know, the world is going to be decentralized and there's going to be no regulatory and it's going to be the wild west. And so when I come in and say, well, decentralization has so many perks and has so many benefits, but as it continues to grow and if it continues to grow, which I suspect it will, because we're seeing all sorts of banks and entities and venture firms, and private offices and individuals around the world using decentralized finance for all the various reasons, whether it's investment or whether it's core banking. Because you also have to remember, the average DeFi user is not your VC. It's not someone with millions of dollars. It's someone who probably lives in a more developing part of the world and does not have access to stable banking, right? And so they're able to participate in a global economy for the first time because their way to earn a living no longer depends on what they can work to or drive to. They can earn, you know, whatever their currency of choices, euros, U.S. dollars, Bitcoin, Ethereum, for doing something and providing a service to the entire world. And that can be even journalism. We have crypto journalists in DeFi and they get paid in crypto and they write about decentralized protocols for, you know, all all of these little DeFi projects um, or people who do graphic design or people who are auditors or programmers or you know, you, you have a whole way that so many people are able to tap into for the first time. And that's something that, because it's given so many people opportunities that they never had. You also have to realize that decentralization to some degree means you can't really shut this down because there's no centralized, you can regulate things and governments are already regulating decentralized finance. Um, they don't necessarily understand what they're doing yet. But that will come with time. We always say that governments are usually five to 10 years behind in technology. And that is certainly true now. But there, from my conversations with people at different levels, they're trying to understand it. And I think for some people, there is a desire to accurately regulate that. Um, so I think there is a huge future for decentralized finance. I think it's opened up a global economy that we didn't have. I think it gives people opportunities that they didn't have. I know for me, I left a what's objectively a very successful professional and academic career to enter DeFi because I realized that as an entrepreneur in this space, I had so much more freedom. I had freedom to explore. I could be my own. 
boss. I could set my own hours. I could employ people around the world at a good living wage. And that's something that feels really good to be able to do. Um, I think decentralized finance is going to come with more regulatory because as more people enter, especially banks, there's going to be more pressure to try and tax it or to try and control centralized on and off access points, which will, you know, might be successful to different degrees. I think it's also really important for the crypto community to be better advocates for themselves, to actually come out of the shadows and to start to interact with their neighbors or to interact with their politicians or to interact with their communities and explain in lay language what they do and how it's worked for them. I think that there can be a really good future for decentralized finance. And I think it could also potentially get regulated to death by people who don't understand really how it works if the community is not a good advocate for itself. And I think that, you know, the community potentially could also go burn itself out as a victim to just scams if it's not better about education and outreach and creating solutions to help investors not just get rugged left and right. Well, I mean, that's what you're here for now, right? That is the position I have found myself in, which, uh, like I said, I, I am not the DeFi police. We don't aim to be the DeFi police. We want to ideally empower investors to be able to do a cost-benefit analysis and figure out their own risk profiles and be smarter investors. And we want to be able to work with developers in creating best practices in the space. So ideally, we want to be empowering both the developers and the users to be the best that they can be. Um, And then that should theoretically create enough community pressures on both sides to let the community know what they should be looking for and to have developers be able to answer them and, you know, hopefully create a cleaner, straightforward place. That's where I see. All right. I think that that is a good place for us to go out on. It has been between the dog barking and everything else. It has been a weird technical day here on Cyber. I apologize for that. I am Matthew Galt here with Lorenzo Franceschi Bicarai and LP uh, of RugDoc. Lorenzo's piece is Meet the Vigilante Who Hacks Millions in Crypto to Save It from Thieves if you want a little bit more in a written format. If you're just tuning in on Twitch, this will be available as a podcast a little bit later today. Try to do some, get that dog bark out of there and do some other cleaning up. Uh, and if you want to catch us live, follow us here and you will get a notification whenever we go live. We will be back next week with more uh, stories from the internet. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Really great questions from the audience. LP, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Goodbye, everybody. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. 
Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.